You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive, or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side-by-side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. Shouldn't you be at work? When the seagulls follow the trawler, it's because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. I'll have a low-fat pizza or something like that, or a few biscuits and some milk on a Sunday. And you can pair up if you like, and you can fucking pick someone else to help you, and you can bring your fucking dinner. Oh, a magnificent goal from Darren Huckabee! Now, you know him better than anybody, probably. Do you back him to score quickly, yes or no? Yes. Hello and welcome to Quickly Kevin. Will he score? I'm Chris Skoll and joining me as always, it's Michael Marden. Hello. And our guest host this week, one third of the podcast group Pappies, it's one of our own, Tom Parry. Oh, I like, I like being one of our own. That must feel so good. When that chant comes out from the terrace, you got to love that. I, I actually, I would, I would say one of my, uh, one of our own is like my number one most hated chant. <laughs> what does it even mean? He's one of our own. And Spurs fans just sing that about Harry Kane. Oh, I just don't really get it. Is it like is he... he was born born down the road sort of thing? How, within a radius, within three kilometre radius of the ground. It might be a better chant, actually. He was born down the road. <laughs> yeah. Born down the road, just for clarity's sake. So this week, we've got an extra good episode for you. Pete Graves talking about Newcastle in the 90s. We know we've never covered this properly before, and Pete is the man to do it. It's a hell of an episode coming up. But firstly, shall we have some correspondence? I'm Jim Rosenthal, and this is the Electronic Post Bag. You've got mail. All right, actually, I want to begin this correspondence section with a do I remember this right? Because this might be the biggest one ever. Do I remember this right? 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 So, Parry, just to bring you up to speed, we had an yeah. email a, f- a couple of episodes ago from a listener who says that after the Champions League final, after in 1999, that Manchester United won, it cut to the studio and Terry Venables was briefly heard dropping the C-bomb as he was chatting <laughs> to a fellow pundit. Okay. We chatted this to Michael, we had a little discussion, he had no memory of it, and we thought, this is simply, it could not have happened. Well, let me tell you, our inbox has been inundated with people who remember the same thing. 
Let me read this first email. Irfan Ali says, love the podcast. Until I heard that email being read out about Tell's alleged C-bomb live on air back in 99, I genuinely thought I was the only person in the world who had apparently heard this. I was 13 years old on that night that Manchester United completed their historic treble. As a Villa fan, I couldn't have cared less, to be honest. Anyhow, I distinctly remember this moment, although there is one small detail in my recollection that differs from the previous email. From what I remember, Venables commented, that Hitsfield was a lucky Seabob. Possibly in response to a question or comment about Bayern going 1-0 up and nearly winning the Champions League. Who knows? But the C-bomb was definitely used. I remember my mum and dad looking at each other and raising their eyebrows. I decided to pretend I hadn't heard anything. I have trawled the internet to try to find this piece of obscene gold, but it's nowhere to be found. And then just to uh, just add to the weight, another email I pulled out, this one from Robert Knights, big fan of the podcast, walking to work this morning and I stopped in my tracks while listening to the latest episode and the Do I Remember This Right section. I've been waiting for over 24 years for someone to verify what my friends and I were convinced we heard Terry Venables mutter on live TV after Manchester United's dramatic Champions League victory. My memory differs slightly in that I'm sure that it happened right after ITV had spoken to Alex Ferguson. And as they wrapped the interview to go back to the studio, the mic picked up Terry Venables muttering, lucky C-U-N-T. In my mind, this makes more sense as one manager was commenting on another's good fortune in the European final, especially after Venable's bad luck in the 86 final. He said he listened, heard it with his mates and they all turned to each other to say, did you hear that? No Sky Plus back then, of course, so we ha- and we had not taped the game, so there's no way to play it back. Over the years, I've searched for the evidence with no luck until today. I hope more, more people come forward to verify. It seems like it happened. I'm going to say it. I think it happened. This is this is the purpose of this podcast. <laughs> what what you, this is exactly the event that you were put on this earth for. You're bringing all these all these Eltel cunt truthers together in one place. It's it's extraordinary. It feels like you've got a higher purpose going on here. I know. Twenty four years. Those people have been thinking. I thought I heard that. No one's ever talked about it. And one email has unearthed. It's opened the floodgates. And ITV destroyed the tapes. <laughs> I love this. There's got to be evidence out there somewhere. Got to be. That is, I'm going to say it, Michael, in all the years we've doing the podcast, I think that is the most astonishing do I remember this right. We know we have, like, sport producers listen to this podcast. Someone must have access to the ITV archive somewhere. That live broadcast must exist. You can send it anonymously. Hello at quicklykevin.com. <laughs> Let's find out. We can find this out for real. Drop it off in a brown paper bag. <laughs> I'll meet you in a, meet in a car park. <laughs> Put it in a shoebox. Toss it in the car. No questions asked. <laughs> oh, man. Astonishing. Astonishing. Do I remember this right? Here's a here's another kind of sliding doors. This is just a random piece of correspondence, but I, I think it's interesting. Subject title, should Steve Bruce have won the Blonde Or? Yes. Hi, all. This is from Richard Nathan. End Nathan. of email. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's just, it's just the subject title. The, the email's blank. <laughs> <laughs> Hi all, as you know, Mike, Michael Owen famously won the Ballon d'Or in 2001 ahead of players such as Raul, Figo, Shevchenko, Henri and Zidane. This got me thinking about his stats a little more. That season he scored 16 league goals in 28 games. Nothing outstanding. Came to realise that amazingly he never scored 20 league goals in a single season, 19 being his best. I think Liverpool's success in winning the UEFA Cup, FA Cup and League Cup that year played its part in his Ballon d'Or award. And this brings me on to Steve Bruce, who matched that feat with an impressive <laughs> 19 goals in the 1990-91 season. 
season for Manchester United. Seeing that he did this from centre-back and also won the Cup Winners' Cup that year, is there a case to be made that Bruce should have indeed won the 1991 Ballon d'Or instead of Jean-Pierre Papin? Looking at the Ballon d'Or rankings for 1991, Bruce didn't receive any votes although his teammates Mark Hughes and Gary Pallister did. It does still seem odd that he didn't play for England. I do realise this email sounds like it could be written by Steve Barnes himself. Many thanks, Richard Maiden. Interesting point there. 19 goals from centre-back. No one won the Ballon d'Or, though, off the back of the Cup Winners' Cup. You know? <laughs> that's, the bit where, that's the bit where the argument was slightly undermined. It's like, and they did win the Cup Winners' Cup. And it's like, well, that's not going to swing the Ballon d'Or, is it? Well, there you go. If you've got any more on Terry Venable swearing in the 1999 Champions League mm-hmm. final, or should another year maybe that Steve Bruce should have won uh, the Blonde or here's how you can get in touch with the show. Get in touch with the show. Email hello at quicklykevin.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at quicklykevin and sign up to the mailing list at quicklykevin.com. Lovely stuff. Pete Graves coming right up. If you want this episode ad-free extended and every episode of this series a week early, no ads, plus two bonus episodes every month, you can sign up for the Quickly Kevin fan club at anotherslice.com forward slash Quickly Kevin or alternatively, go onto your Apple podcast app and subscribe to the Quickly Kevin fan club right there. All right. You've been waiting a long time for this. Here it is at long last. Pete Graves, Newcastle in the 90s. Our guest this week is a Geordie through and through, the face of Sky Sports News, former head commentator at Newcastle United and the brains and brawn behind We're Still Fighting for This Title, the new audio documentary charting the Magpies' rise through the 90s. It's a pleasure to welcome to Quickly Kevin, Pete Graves. Welcome, Pete. Pleasure to be here. The brain and brawn, I love that. I've never (laughs) been described as either of those things, but I will take them both. Thank you very much for having me on. We should say as well, we started this interview by establishing Pete is in Sky right now. My kid, my one-year-old, was up at half five this morning. I came downstairs, put on Sky Sports News. There was Pete this morning, and we're recording this in the evening. The man doesn't sleep. He's Mr. Sky. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was just saying, so I've, my, I, I've got wife and three kids. They all live in Newcastle. We decided to all move as a family back to Newcastle, which is great because I get to go to the matches and take my kids to the Newcastle games again. But obviously I still work down here four days a week in London doing the breakfast show on Sky Sports News, which I love. So I kind of like, I didn't want to leave Sky and I, I didn't kind of want to leave Newcastle. So it means that when I'm down here, I kind of do live in the office and like the cleaners <laughs> and the people in the canteen, they just see me all through the day. They must get sick of me. I'm like, there's that weirdo just wandering around who never goes home. When I, when I say Sky's, Sky's my home, it really is, literally. <laughs> Have you got a prime spot in the building for kipping that you can recommend? And if anyone gets to Sky Sports, is there anywhere that you can recommend for a good sleep? Well, you know what? This is true, right? So I, I did get a place down here, right? I got my own flat, which was brilliant. But then in lockdown, I, I rented it out to a lady because I was like, I was only working one day a week or whatever down here. So there's no point keeping a flat going. So I rented it out. And the lady who rented it off me had a child during lockdown. So when lockdown lifted, I couldn't turf her out. So I sort of (laughs) left her in there. So she's there because she loves it. And so I ended up renting a room right opposite. It's in a lady's house. It's the third floor. It's got a single bed, 
no TV. He's got a tiny little window. It's like a prison cell. <laughs> so that's where I live when I'm not here. So that's probably why I spend so much time in the office. So yeah, people who think that like being a TV presenter is all really glam and everything, let me tell you now from the horse's <laughs> mouth, it's not. <laughs> There's a lot of responsibility on your shoulders, Pete, because on Quickly Kevin, we've often been criticised for not doing enough on Newcastle. And this is the opportunity, really. So do you feel the weight of that responsibility? It's a huge job you've got on your hands here. I can feel the big Newcastle United shape, Batman symbols, <laughs> light in the sky. I've, I needed to come on this podcast, which I love, by the way. It's a pleasure to be on here and to talk about Newcastle because we were kind of everyone's second favourite team in the 90s. I mean, everyone loved Kevin Keegan's Newcastle. I'm very, very fortunate in that Kevin is, and I'm not dropping names here. He, I get on really well with him. I was I was with him on Monday night. He came to, I was doing a book launch. Him and Eddie Howe both came and I introduced the two of them to, to each other for the first time on stage Whoa. in front of thousand screaming Geordies. So that was an incredible night. Kevin is an, he's my hero. He's a legend. And uh, I'm lucky enough to speak to him a couple of times a week. I'm so thankful for everything he did for Newcastle when I was at sort of 11, 12 years old. I was at his first game for the club. He took over a team that was awful. In you know less than two years, he took them from the bottom of the old first division, why we call it the championship now, the bottom of that table, all the way up to the top of the Premier League, finishing third in the Premier League. And that was like, it was incredible. I don't think it'll ever happen again that you'd go from the bottom of the championship to like the Champions League places in literally less than two seasons. It's an extraordinary story, isn't it? I, I was surprised you've been criticised by not covering Newcastle enough quickly, Kevin, because to my mind, when you think of the birth of the Premier League and that... Newcastle are so linked to 90s, like the names of Newcastle's team through the mid-90s. They are the classic names of 90s footballers in that decade. It's it's a hell of a team. And you're right. I mean, like I'm a Wolves fan. I was from Wolverhampton. And we were, everyone was rooting for Newcastle in the Premier League. Everyone wanted it. It felt like every time you picked up the newspaper, we'd signed another like major <laughs> star. It was so weird at the time. I mean, it was kind of like, I think when like Newcastle now, when the big takeover happened, everyone was saying, oh, you're going to sign Neymar, you're going to sign Mbappe, you're going to sign Messi. And it's not been like that. Newcastle's been very strategic and they've sort of bought young up and coming stars. Keegan's Newcastle bought the sort of big superstars of the day. Les Ferdinand, Alan Shearer, Tino Aspria, David Ginola. They just kept coming. You'd watch the telly on a Sunday and see like some, like Tino Aspria score a hat-trick in Serie A on Channel 4. On Monday, they'd sign him. You know, you'd watch a Belgium (laughs) international game in in the World Cup and like Philippe Albert would score a worldie for Belgium. Following Tuesday, he would sign for Newcastle. It was just like... Every time I saw a good player on the telly, I'm sure Keegan was doing exactly the same thing. He'd just buy the player. (laughs) (laughs) It's worth saying aesthetically as well, a very good-looking team. Uh, You think all those players that you've just mentioned, they're good-looking players. Uh, I think that was part of it. You had to be top player, but looks definitely came into it. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of pressure on all men in Newcastle that looked good at that time. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing Barry Venison stayed in the team, really. Hey, hey, Venice was a good-looking lad. There's no doubt about him. Maybe not everyone's cup of tea, but you can see... you see the appeal. I remember that period. You'd go out into Newcastle and, 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 and don't anybody Wikipedia my age because you're going to work out. I was probably too young to be going out in Newcastle at the time. But I'd go out, you go out into the bars and you'd just walk into a bar and you'd look up at the bar and you'd see this like glow. And you look <laughs> down the bar and you just see Shearer, Ferdinand, Ginola, <laughs> Rob Lee, all just sitting there drinking pints. And it was like, oh, there they are. The boys are there and it was it was great. You could just go and talk to them. And it's not like these days. I mean, 
can never happen. But yeah, they were out on the town all the time. And, and it's an incredible story, actually. I spoke to Steve Howie about this. And they, they said that there was a brilliant party culture in that Newcastle squad. They'd all go out on the quayside, you know, Ginola and John Beresford and all these. And they'd all be out there every night and had a brilliant uh, squad morale. The, the story goes that when Newcastle was sort of 12 points clear and running away with the title, one day Keegan walks into training and he goes, listen, lads, great squad. All the partying's fantastic, but we are never, ever going to get another chance than this to win the title. So let's knock the partying on the head. Let's knock the drinking on the head. Let's stop all that. And let's just knuckle down and get this title won. And all the lads are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then once they stop going out and partying, they stop winning. <laughs> That was the problem. So actually, the, the one title we should have actually won, and I've never seen Newcastle win anything in my lifetime, <laughs> the most Newcastle thing ever, that because they all stopped going out drinking and partying all the time, they blew the title. I mean, it's unbelievable. Do you think halfway through that run, didn't they go, we should start going out again? They were like, out we again. need to turn this around. Yeah. yeah. So that was it. That's what the legend goes. But uh, they were great times. I, we never won anything, but I don't regret it. I think in some ways, the fact they came so close and didn't win it, all it's done is fuel the city and the hunger for Newcastle to win something. And that's why it's quite exciting again now, because you feel like you're getting towards it. And the desperation that people have just to win a trophy in that city is just feel it everywhere you go. So, and, and I think had they won something back then, it would be slightly different now. It sounds silly, but you see supporters get used to winning stuff. We lost the Carabao Cup final to Manchester United last season. And honestly, no disrespect to Manchester United fans, but they were walking out like it was any other day. If Newcastle had won the Carabao Cup, they would still be partying now. We'd be doing an open <laughs> every single night of the week. So it's like you do get used to winning trophies. And I think Newcastle are just like, they're, it's ready to burst because of what happened under Keegan. The desperation remains. There's something I remember from the mid-90s. Didn't a guy get a tattoo of Newcastle lifting the Premier League trophy in the weeks <laughs> leading before they'd actually, well, the end of the season? Where's that guy now? The one I remember is that a massive Andy Cole tattoo on his back. He got a massive like Andy Cole tattoo. And then he got sold to Manchester United like two days later or something. And that was, again, summed up Keegan because Keegan, of course, came out on the steps at St. James's Park because there was an angry mob gathering outside St. James's Park. Yes. And Keegan walked out into the mob and just like faced them face to face. Like Jesus. <laughs> I remember the footage. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? Was, he tells it great, Kevin, because he says uh, he was upstairs with all the board of directors and Terry McDermott and they were looking out the window and the board of directors are going, goodness me, there's thousands of them gathering outside. And, and, and Douglas Hall picks up the phone and he goes, listen, we need a car to take us out the back door and get out of here. And Kevin goes, no, come on, let's just go out there. Let's talk to the fans, you know. And all the directors go, no, we can't do that. There'll be a riot. Kevin's like, no, come on, let's do it. And he persuades everyone to walk out. He says as he was walking out the door, he carried a walk-in and he turned and all the directors had legged it out <laughs> the back door. And he was just left standing there. On his own. On his own, with Terry McDermott standing next to him. And one of the fans shouted from the front said, what have you done selling Andy Colt, our biggest rivals, Manchester United? And he looked back at him and he said, well, when I came here, your biggest rivals were South End United. Now they're Manchester United. So you're going to have to trust in me. And then he said, the second fan shouted out, 
everyone calm down. He wouldn't sell him unless he had someone else lined up. And apparently Terry McDermott behind him just whispered, you want to bet? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody else lined up. But funnily enough, he signed Les Ferdinand with that money. And if you speak to Les now, you'll, he'll tell you that Manchester United approached him first, but he had given a promise, I think to Steve Coppola, if I remember rightly, to stay at QPR for one more season. So Manchester United then signed Andy Cole. He was their second choice. However, Steve Cottle then got sacked. Keegan got wind of this and he went and bought Les Ferdinand. So actually, he got Sir Alex's first choice and Sir Alex ended up with his number two. So Newcastle won the transfer battle, but Manchester United famously won the title. Oh, there you go. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive, or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side-by-side. Side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddle boards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! You touched on your friendship with Kevin Keegan. Now, obviously, the title, Quickly Kevin Willie Score, comes from an infamous bit of commentary, Brian Moore teeing up, well, I mean, stitching up Kevin Keegan in, in uh, France 98. We've heard people who are friends with Brian Moore say he really regretted it, but I've never heard Keegan's side of the story. Has this ever come up? He had an awful lot of time for, for well, he has a lot of time for Brian Moore. I mean, I know that. And uh, he respects him highly. He's like one of the best in the business. But I think you only need to look at how few commentaries Keegan did after that, but he barely did another one, did he? And he doesn't do any media at all, really. Now he yeah. likes to get out and about, um, do some public speaking, and go to different businesses and talk about. Kevin's not really a football man, right? But what he does love is he loves he loves the idea of how you can pick up a group of people and motivate them. He's a great man motivator, and he he does it to me before we go out on stage if we're doing an event together, and he sort of tells me I'm the best in the business, and I wish oh, I was working with someone else the other night. I was all night all I was thinking was I wish it was you. And I, when I got on stage, I feel a million dollars. <laughs> and uh, he's probably saying the same thing for every single person he works with. <laughs> yeah, he's brilliant at that, but no, he doesn't do any any media stuff, and I think that's probably why because of the things like that over the years that. Um, he wears his heart on his sleeve, Kevin. Yeah. Famous, I would love it, rant. I mean, it's still so famous to this day. You don't see managers really 
getting that passionate on screen that everyone's quite calm and collected. And, and I think he's, he's a wonderful person, Kevin, but he wants to be able to just say what he feels like and not have to worry about what the implications are. So, and I think that commentary clip that you talk about is probably an example of, of why he doesn't really do much anymore. Yeah. In a weird way, he's not really cut out for management because like you say, he has no poker face. Everything is so emotional with him. And I think that really came to the fore. I think if you heard the rumours about when he took over at England and he quit at half time, or the, or like straight after the game he handed his resignation. But at half time he said to the players at defeat to Germany last game at uh, Wembley, I just don't know what to do. He's so emotional, isn't he? In a way that's not really suitable to football management. Yeah, and he 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 also feels the weight of pressure on his shoulders more than anyone I know. So He's not been to St. James's Park in about 15 years <gasps> since he left under Mike Ashley. He's not been back. Now, Eddie Howe is desperate for him to come to a game. He wants him to come to a game. But Kevin feels the weight of responsibility. He would say, if I come and they lose, I would feel terrible. So he, he almost, even wow. to this day, feels the pressure of, I don't want to be sitting there and to take anything away from Eddie Howe and the team and all of a sudden they lose and I would, I would feel personally responsible. So he does he does feel the pressure of things like that. And I think that's just, it's what's so lovely about him. You know, he wears his heart on his sleeve and, you know, I love him to pieces as a result. But, but yeah, I know what you're saying. It's not really modern day management. I think you see these guys these days. I mean, Eddie's a great example. He's very calm. He's very reserved in some ways. And I think you've almost got to be like that sometimes times these days it's so endearing isn't it of kevin like i want to play for him i think that's why fans like love him to this day because there is no bullshit with him what you see is what you get i think that's why players loved playing for him as well possibly yeah and that's what we did with this podcast because we're still fighting for this title We, we just wanted to go back and speak to all the players and every single player we asked said yes we just went and said, oh, we're making a podcast about Kevin Keegan and what happened. And literally every player from that era was happy to come on. I mean, we spoke to Les Ferdinand, Andy Cole, Rob Lee, you know, Lee Clark, Steve Watson, David Kelly, Liam O'Brien, all the way. So just about every player and not a single player said, no, nah, I don't want to do it. They were all so happy to come on and talk about that period because it was such an exciting time. And it really changed football. I mean, I think that whole sort of, it wasn't just Newcastle. I mean, there was the whole of face of football changed over that time. And it was, it for me, the best era. It's why this podcast is so popular, isn't it? Because it was such an exciting time. Football was brilliant and the colour and the, the razzmatazz and everything. It was just a, a fantastic time. And there are times where I really miss it, honestly, because it was so great. And following Newcastle was just a dream at that time as well. There's a reason why Tony Blair and Kevin Keegan doing headers together it's like it's such a defining image of the 90s because Keegan was almost like the Tony Blair of football, changing the way football was seen in this country. You know, the way Newcastle played and the entertainers right at the birth of the Premier League and Sky taking over, it was a dream for them because it was like, this is what Premier League football should look like. Yeah. It should look like David Ginola in a kind of red and blue shirt with flowing locks, <laughs> taking on four Tottenham players and slotting it in the bottom corner. That's what Sky wanted the Premier League to be. And it was like, oh, this is, we're not used to this. It was, ama- it was amazing. Can I ask, were you at the um, the 4-3 game? Obviously, like the best, the defining kind of Newcastle game for me is that incredible Liverpool 4-3. 
I was probably a bit young. It was, I was it was Anfield, wasn't it? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, it was. It was more local. I went to went to a couple of local derbies at Roker Park and saw Newcastle play at Sunderland. Now, but why my dad thought that was a good idea to take me to that one, the first one, by the way, talk about a baptism of fire. Uh, literally stuff getting chucked and I was in the way end and everything. And I was like, goodness me. But no, I wasn't at that one. I mean, I was at the Manchester United 5-0 where you say they're like, I think the, the goal scorers on the day, I mean, Ginola was on the score sheet third and and Shearer and then uh, Philippe Albert with the famous chip at the end after uh, Darren Peacock had put his head but that 5-0 was amazing but uh, but no I, I watched the 4-3 on Sky on I think it was a Monday night football at the time yeah it was heartbreaking cried all night that night and I was really epitomised the title slipping away that night it was um it was a huge blow for us and that was the last big F I still think if we'd have won that game we'd have gone on and won the title you're so close to winning it it's a classic game that could have gone either way. Like if you win that game, I don't doubt you're going to win the title. I think the manner of the defeat was so heavy. It's knocked the wind. Like it's so hard to come back from that. You said about Kevin Keegan, why he's not, you know, he's not suited to management. So he's, and him slumped over the advertising <laughs> board. I mean, literally, his arm, his head, everything's just hanging over. He's given everything. It's like he's, he's deflated. like a boxer. I know, he's kicked every ball, he's headed every ball. And when Collymore closes it in and scores that way, it's just like, oh. And then I think it was the following season. We we went there and it was the same result. Yeah. People have to forget it the following season. Yeah. We lost 4-3 again. So two years in a row was was a 4-3 defeat at Anfield. And yeah, I mean, this it's one that I quickly changed the channel. If I'm flicking the home, flicking through Sky Sports and it's Premier League years, if it's that season, I'm like, oh, I shall <laughs> quickly like grab the controller and turn it over. But I, I, mean, I literally have nightmares about that season regularly, wake up in a cold sweat. <laughs> Sometimes I dream that we've actually won it and then you wake up and remember that we blew it in. <laughs> Crashing back. <laughs> when was your first game at St James's Park? Did you catch the kind of Beardsley Waddle Gaza era, or were you just after that? I was just after. So my ear was Mickey Quinn was my first hero. It was perfect, really, because Jim Smith was the manager. I think it was 1990-1991 season, and Jim Smith was the manager. He then left, and Ozzy Ardiles came in and was the manager, and we were literally going down. We were awful. And then Keegan got announced. And I just remember the buzz, my dad coming into the house and going, Kevin Keegan's the manager. He's the manager. They, you know, they couldn't believe it. My mum was from Doncaster as well, where Kevin was from. So she was like, oh, Kevin, I, you know, I can't believe it. Donnie's greatest ever is coming. So and we went to his first game and I was in the Milburn paddock. We used to stand at the front of the Milburn stand and it was rammed. I'd got used to going and there was always... Fans have been protesting at the time against the ownership and against the club. And it was in a really bad place. And used to, I used to go into the Melbourne paddock and I could kick a football about with the other young kids. There was that much space. But Keegan's first game, I was rammed up against the wall at the front and it was just packed. And I remember him coming out with his hair and his tracksuit on. And just looking at him, I thought, God, he looks amazing. <laughs> and he just had this godlike aura. And the whole stadium knew we were going to win. We hadn't won for ages. We were we were useless. And it was the same 11 players, but the whole stadium knew we were going to win. Right. We did 1-3-0 and Keegan was went knee sliding <laughs> along the pitch when we scored the first one. And after that, it was just win, win. And then it wasn't win every game. I have to say, you look back in the history and they, they still, there was a couple of bad results, but they had to go to Leicester who were top of the table on the last day and get something. And they, and they won away at Leicester and that kept us up. 
And it was like we survived. And you knew that summer was massive. They thought, he's kept us up. That's what he came to do. The following season, it was win, 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 win. I think they won the first 11 on the bounce. And the title was wrapped up. That championship title was wrapped up by Christmas. Last game of the season, we'd already won the league. And again, we were playing Leicester and it was perfect. It was the last game a year on. We were 6-0 up at half time. And it was just, <laughs> what is going on? How has he done this in a year? Can I ask just before you got into the Premier League, how, did it, how had he done that? Was it? Did you have Andy Cole then? Because David Kelly came to us after Newcastle. Yeah, so that last game of the season against Leicester, when we were six and up at half time, Cole scored a hat trick, Kelly scored a hat trick, Rob Lee scored the other one. He brought in Rob Lee, brought in Andy Cole, brought in some brilliant players for that that league. And then he was very clever with the ones he let go because like David Kelly went, he, he scored a hat trick in the last yeah. game of the season, got rid of him. Gavin Peacock went, Mickey Quinn went, all of these players that I thought were our best players. He got rid of them for the Premier League. And our first game in the Premier League, I'll never forget it. It was Tottenham at home. They had Teddy Sheringham playing. And Teddy Sheringham got the ball about 15 minutes in and he hit a shot which just whistled wide of the post. And I remember thinking, I've never seen anyone kick a ball that hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Welcome to the Premier League. Yeah, it was like, welcome to the Premier League. And then Sheringham scored the winner. We lost 1-0. And me and my dad driving home. That dad said it's going to be a tough old season. This and I was like, yeah, I don't think don't think we're ready, dad, sort of thing. But we ended up finishing third. It was you know as soon as we got our first win under our belt, just then we started battering everybody again in that league, and it was it was unbelievable to finish third. I mean, just come up, but Keegan again just had that the whole city was believing that you know we could achieve anything. Amazing time. That's what kind of blew my mind about the podcast is that I didn't realize. Keegan was such a big deal in Newcastle beforehand and the lift it gave the city. I also didn't really appreciate what a state Newcastle were in off the pitch as well. Like how the club was basically falling apart. And when you watch uh, clips in the early 90s of St. James's Park, I can't figure out what's going on because the stadium looks nothing like St. James's Park as you know it now. There's just like loads of little nooks and crannies. <laughs> yeah. What he did was, was very clever. It wasn't really, it was as much off the pitch as it was on the pitch, like you say. So he said he walked in on the first day and he went into the gym and he said, if you look around the gym, he said there are old sandwiches stuffed behind the weight machines and <laughs> sausage rolls. And it was just disgusting. And so what he did was they won that first game and then he got decorators in who completely like repainted the gym, did up all the equipment, polished up all the weight benches and got rid of all the rubbish. The sandwiches. All the sandwiches. <laughs> and when the players came in on Monday morning, they're all walking in going, goodness me, look at this place. So the whole, basically the whole training ground within his first few days was completely redecorated and tidied up. Then the next thing was, he said, right, our players aren't, because they were traveling on the morning of the game. He said, if, they were, if they were playing Southampton, they'd travel early in the morning and get there. And they were playing these games on the same day they were traveling. So he said, no, now we go down the day before. I expect the club to pay for hotels, better travel. And so he just, he lifted all of that side as well. So all of a sudden, you know, the players improved the players' tracksuits and the, the sports gear and he did a lot of that side as well, which made the players feel, oh, hang on a second. We've got nice training facilities. We're staying in hotels, put a structure in place, early nights, all that sort of thing. And I think that had a huge bearing on the results on the field as well. He just brought in 
a real professionalism into the whole football club that had basically died many years before. It's not a surprise to me that tracksuits are high up on his list of priorities, Keegan. <laughs> I imagine it's two or three on the list. Let's talk about tracksuits. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Adidas came in and those Adidas kits were, were, were famous. Weren't they? Beautiful. Funny enough, they just signed a deal to be Newcastle's kit maker once again from next season. No and, way. And so they're back as real well. Real kick in the Jaffers for Castor there. <laughs> 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 it kind of sums up the way the club is. Though. It feels very much now like it did then with the excitement in the city. And my son's 12 and he's living exactly the same journey that I lived under Keegan. He's doing it with Eddie Howe. It's like watching a mirror image of myself just going through it all. And he's been through the, the rough times at Newcastle and sort of saying, oh, dad, why do I have to support these? You know, as he was little. And now he's like, oh, dad, I'm so pleased that we support Newcastle. He's over the moon because all of a sudden there's there's excitement again and it, the atmosphere is off the scale. It's, it's similar to what it was in the 90s once again. In terms of like the big marquee signings you made, we've got to talk about Alan Shearer. It was such a big moment, I think, in the nation, partly because of the fee, but also the scenes when Alan Shearer signed for Newcastle and those thousands of people that turned up to welcome him, that still burned into my memory. I can still see it now. Did you go to that? Yeah, yeah, it was... um... St. James's Park brought him out, didn't they, onto, uh, in, and all the crowd are there. And it was just, it wasn't a surprise to me, really, because it was what we'd been doing under Keegan. And it, it always felt that we would get Shearer somehow, because that's just what he did. I mean, to be fair to them, they he was talking about this deal on Monday when I was with him, and, and it was £15 million, which was a world record at the time. And Blackburn asked for it in one payment as well. They said it has to be in one payment. It couldn't be staggered over years. So Newcastle somehow made it happen and they, and they signed Shearer. Keegan will say that Shearer had a choice of Manchester United or Newcastle. And Keegan said to me, you're not going to win anything if you go to Manchester United. <laughs> it's over for them. I've heard they're about to start playing the, all the youth team and all this. So goodness me, as we know, the rest is history and they won everything. Shearer came into Newcastle United and didn't win a single thing. But... He is the club's all-time record goal scorer. There is a statue of him outside the ground, and I just think that that's worth everything to him. And uh, he still goes to games regularly. Actually, I went to the Paris Saint-Germain game recently. I got out of my taxi, and as I got out, I literally walked into Rob Lee and Alan Shearer walking down like the, the road St. James's Park at the same time. So I had a bit of chat, shook hands, but Shearer, as we got close to the ground, pulled his thing up like this and his hat down and he just had his eyes showing like this which I was like yeah fair enough he doesn't want to shake everyone's hand as he goes in problem is as we got to the bottom of the road the Paris Saint-Germain ultras were coming up <laughs> banging the drum and I've looked at Shearer and Shearer's standing there with just his eyes showing and I went Al you do realise it looks like you're standing here waiting for a fight and I thought we were going to have to fight the entire Paris Saint-Germain ultras because Shearer looked like he was only there to have a riot. <laughs> it was very surreal. Yeah, he still goes to the games and loves it. And he's an absolute hero there, Shearer. So, and he was a brilliant player, like so good. Not people think about his goals, but as he got older, he sort of adapted his game and he, he started playing more as a deeper as a number ten. And he was just such a good football. He could have played anywhere on the pitch. And he reminds me a lot of Harry Kane. When I watch Harry Kane, when you see him like play in the, in the flesh. Harry Kane, 
he's very similar to Shearer. He can hold the ball up. His first touch is immaculate. You can't, you just can't get him off the ball. And Shearer was just like that. And he, he was a joy to watch. And yeah, there was part of me thinks, goodness me, he could have played anywhere in the world and, and won everything. And he gave his entire career to his local team. Oh, it was a joy to watch him week in, week out. Absolute legend. Have you ever spent much time with David Ginola? Yeah, a lot. We flew David over and brought him back to Newcastle um, not long ago, actually, last season. And then I took him to the game on the Saturday and we sat and watched Newcastle play Aston Villa. He played for them as well in the 90s. He is the best looking man that's ever lived. <laughs> up there with Barry Venison. <laughs> Just ahead of Venice. Yeah, he's, he's, he's incredibly good looking. And yeah, I mean, my mum and wife and everybody went to the show I did with David in Newcastle and uh, you kind of half, half-heartedly introduces him to your wife because you just know she's going to melt when she meets him. Sure enough, she did. Yeah, yeah I mean, he's, he's a very, very handsome guy. Great footballer, great bloke as well. Someone told me he smokes 20 fags a day and he's been doing that since his playing career. He does smoke. He still smokes um, so to this day. And I mean, Keegan tells a fantastic story that um, they just won a game, Sheffield Wednesday away or something. They're on the team coach and all the players' stocks are <laughs> like coughing. Kevin's like, what's going on here? And Terry Mack goes, smells like someone's smoking on the bus. <laughs> so Kevin's walked to the back of the bus and there's David Ginola just in nothing but his pants. <laughs> Just smoking a cigarette at the back of the back of the bus. Kevin's gone, David, what are you doing? You can't smoke on here. And all the players are like moody. Like, he's smoking gaffer. So you can't smoke on here. It's the team coach. And he said, I always smoke when I play well. And he's still sitting there smoking. So Kevin's like, right, pull the bus over. He wants to smoke. He's going to have to get off. So he kicks Janola off. Janola pulls his like tracksuit on, gets off, smokes his cigarette in the lay-by. And all the players are banging on the window. Like, get on with it. Get on with it. Anyway, Kevin says he like put the cigarette out. Reached into his pocket, pulled <laughs> lit up another one, and all the players were going mad because apparently Keegan, when they won, used to take them to uh, the Weatherby Whaler, which was a fish and chip shop in Weatherby, as a treat when they'd won an away game. So they all went and got fish and chips, and all the lads just wanted to get to the fish and chip shop. Ginola's there in the in the lay-by, sparking up another cigarette. You know, he takes them for fish and chips if they win. It's like they're Boy Scouts or something like that. They're grown men. I know, I know. But it's not funny, though. That's probably something else they stopped when we were 12 points clear. No more drinking and no more fish and chips. You know? That was it. The Weatherby Whalers' profits just dropped off completely. <laughs> Talking about the 90s, that Republic of Ireland team in the 90s, Jack Charlton was the, the manager, another Geordie. And, you know, they drank like fishes during that World Cup and got to the quarterfinals. You know, brilliant team. I used to present all the Republic of Ireland games for, for Sky and, and I was always working with the likes of Ray Houghton and Pat Bonner and all of that team and they talked about they'd be up till like two o'clock in the morning drinking Guinness yeah. and then go out and play the next day in a World <laughs> Cup match and used to win so maybe there's something in this guys I don't know <laughs> We actually spoken to um, Jason McAteer in this series of Quickly Kevin and he said they used to push back training at Ireland because everyone was hung over like, so they wouldn't train first thing in the morning <laughs> they'd do it a little bit later so they had a bit more rest Perfect. I wanted to ask about, sadly, like kind of the end of the Keegan era, which comes in like January 97. And how much of a shock was it? It felt such a shocking story. Yeah, it was a massive shock. And well, there was an offer of, I think, a five-year contract on the table, which they wanted him to sign. But it came at a time when they were also floating the club on the stock exchange, basically. And, and, and 
what they'd done at Newcastle in that time, they'd become such a big club in the, the 90s that they, they'd started this Newcastle sporting club, which was basketball, ice hockey. There was a, a speedway team and there was all these other Newcastle teams in the city and they brought players over from America to play for the basketball team, the Newcastle Eagles. And there was the Newcastle Vipers, which was the ice hockey team. All these Canadian guys had come over and, and there was the, the Falcons, the rugby team as well, and the Speedway team. But one of the things that they were going to have to do was disband all of those other clubs if they were going to float it. And Kevin had been a big part of helping to set up ice hockey, basketball, rugby, all of these other things. And he wasn't happy with that because he'd felt he'd made friendships with the basketball guys, the ice hockey guys. So, when they were getting disbanded, he got he wasn't happy. So they, they apparently said, "Look, here's the contract." And Kevin says they put the contract on the table. It's five year contract. You've got to sign it now or go. And he was said, "I'm not going to sign it if you're going to get rid of all these the basketball and the ice hockey team and everything like that." So this was the issue, and uh, and they weren't prepared to keep those going. So that was it. He walked out. That sounds like such a Kevin Keegan story. <laughs> To be like, but my mates are on the ice hockey team. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah, he'd, he'd spend a lot of time with these guys. These are people who come over from, and they trusted him. And he said, look, we're going to do this. We're gonna, we want the basketball team to be the best team in British basketball, the ice hockey team to win the ice hockey league. And it was this whole bit like Barcelona do. I think that's a big sporting club of different sports. But when they wanted to float it on the stock exchange, some, in his words, people from London said, now we need to get rid of all that because it, it devalues the product. It's just the football and we go forward as a football club. Kevin didn't want to let the people down that he felt had trusted him. And that was what it was. So he just, he went home and he said to his wife, Jean, who's an incredible lady as well, and said, look, we're, we're going, that's it, we'll leave it. Never turned back. It was heartbreaking. And Newcastle as a city sort of went into a period of mourning after Keegan left. And it didn't matter what happened afterwards. I mean, I was at the Paris Saint-Germain game the other night where we beat them. And people were saying, was this better or worse than the Barcelona when they beat Barcelona? And it was much better, this Paris Saint-Germain win, because when Newcastle beat Barcelona 26 years ago, whatever it was, I think it was 97 or something like that. When Newcastle beat Barcelona 3-2, Keegan had just left a lot of the players had been sold off and Kenny Daglish was in the dugout and it felt like it was an end of an era and the club was just on the decline. Whereas the other night when they beat Paris Saint-Germain, it feels very much like the club's very much in the sort of in liftoff mode at the moment. So after Keegan left, the club, it just, it really did. It didn't matter who they brought in. There were some great managers came in, but couldn't lift the gloom on Tyneside after Keegan left everyone was devastated you know they'd not won anything and there was a feeling that once Kevin had gone uh, the chances of ever winning anything had gone as well another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where Bank of America can help for your financial to-dos Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's such a big pair of shoes to fill. 
And you just think, Kenny Dalglish on paper is the perfect candidate to take Newcastle forward. But it just felt like it never worked. It just didn't click, did it? No, he was really unlucky, Kenny, because I think you're right. It could have been anybody. It was a bit like David Moyes going in at Manchester United after Sir Alex. Yeah. Any, when you ever re- replace a, a club legend, I think David Moyes is a brilliant manager. And you, you know, whoever had gone in there after Sir Alex was bound to fail. And it was a bit like that. I agree with you. I think Kenny Dalglish was the perfect man to come in. He had a great relationship with Alan Shearer as well. They'd won the title together at Blackburn. And he'd actually replaced Kevin Keegan previously at Liverpool as a player and then gone on and managed Liverpool and done had a great success there. So on paper, he was the perfect man. But the fans of Newcastle have got this weird sort of connection. It's reciprocated by Kevin. Kevin to the fans and the fans to Kevin. There's this absolute love that goes both ways. And when he's not around, like it's not the same. That's why... Monday night when he came up and met Eddie Howe and everything was such an emotional night for the fans that were there because he was back in the city and he, it was almost like on the paper said the next day it was the sort of master handing over the sort of <laughs> responsibility to the apprentice and it felt very much like that. But uh, Kenny was unlucky. He could have been anybody. And uh, he did a while. I mean, I say beat Barcelona. I think they finished second under him in the league as well. I think there was maybe a cup final as well, but... No, it just didn't ever feel the same, weirdly, after Keegan left. Yeah, and after Kenny Dalglish came Rude Hullet. Again, superstar. Yeah. Like in the 90s icon. But again, like it, that was one of the first managerial appointments where you, I was really aware in the press that there was lots of stories being leaked about how badly it was going in a way mm. that I can't really remember many other kind of managers in the 90s. I mean, aside from like kind of Graham Taylor, there was a real sense that Ruth Hullet at Newcastle that the players didn't like him and stories were coming out about his tenure. Yeah, the players hated him. Didn't buy any fish and chips. <laughs> yeah, no, that was gone. But I mean, the night that I always remember under Ruud, which is the famous one, is that they played Sunderland at St. James's Park and you looked on the subs bench and... Alan Shearer and Duncan Ferguson are both sitting on the subs bench with faces of thunder and they've not, they've both been dropped and we lose to Sunderland. And I remember the feeling in the stadium was one of the worst I've ever, ever known that night. Bad enough to lose to Sunderland, but when you've got your two best players sitting down on the bench because Rude Hullet had thought that Ferguson and Shearer were finished, thought Shearer's legs had gone. So then when he left, so Bobby Robson came in and did the easiest thing in the world, gave him the number nine shirt, put him back up front. And of course, in Bobby's very first game at St. James's Park, Shearer went and scored five goals against <laughs> Sheffield Wednesday. They won 8-0. And so Bobby was a brilliant manager for us, absolutely brilliant. And again, he got it back to similar to what Kevin had had. And in my lifetime, it's been Keegan, it's been Bobby Robson, and now it's it's Eddie Howe. I put him up there with those two. But yeah, Bobby was a brilliant manager for us. Totally understood the city. He was a local guy. He just got what the club was all about. I've heard that Bobby Robson's a bit of a hero of yours. I did a Newcastle Stadium tour, actually, a few years ago, and I didn't realise that I kind of hadn't really clocked there's a statue of Bobby Robson at St James's Park. Because in my mind, he's not there for a long period of time, but the strength of feeling that Newcastle fans appear to have for that man is incredible. Well, it's the same as Kevin. He picked Newcastle up when they were near the bottom of the Premier League and guided them to a mid-table finish, which what Eddie Howe did. And the following season, they qualified for the Champions League, exactly the same as Eddie Howe. But I think in those three seasons that followed, we finished third, fourth and fifth. And then after the season we finished fifth, he was sacked because it was seen as a slide, like third, fourth and fifth, are they getting worse, right? No Champions League and off he went. 
just looking back, it was incredible because after that, we were nowhere near those sort of top places for a long time. I think the fans felt really bad for Bobby that, uh, that yeah, he was a local guy. Everyone loved him and he, he did a great job with not a very good team. He had Shearer, but didn't have that many good players. He bought some good young players at the time, like some Jermaine Genas and Craig Bellamy and players like that and Kieran Dyer. He didn't have much money to spend either. He didn't spend a lot of money and he, he took them into the Champions League. So, you know, yeah, Bobby was a, a huge hero of mine and a huge hero of, uh, of all Newcastle fans, yeah. Did you ever meet him? Yeah, I did. I had dinner at his house. Oh, what? Yeah. and uh, What was his house like? Amazing. So the first thing I remember that when you walk in, his doorstops are manager of the month trophies. So you walk in, there's a, there's a Barclays Premier League manager of the month trophy wedging the front door open and he's got them around his ass keeping the doors <laughs> open. And the giant <laughs> painting of him and Brazilian Ronaldo in his living room because Brazilian Ronaldo, he signed him, I think he, he signed him for PSV and then he took him to Barcelona and uh, he was like a, a son to, to Bobby. Yeah, I was very close to Bobby and I still to this day, I'm very close with his two sons, Andrew and Mark as well. And I host his annual golf day out in Portugal, which they still have every year. They raise money for an orphanage in Portugal. Uh, so yeah, the Robson family and Lady Elsie, um, yeah, mean a lot to me. Bobby was absolutely sensational. Oh man, what a story. And just quickly on Rude Hullet, you must have heard the story. I've read, I can't remember this is in Alan Shearer's book. Rude Hullet had kind of lost the team. And one thing he did that to try and get everybody back on side was showering with the players. Have I dreamt this? <laughs> have you dreamt it? I don't know. I'm sure it's in Shearer's book. And Shearer's book was like, oh, we got in the shower with them after to kind of go like, I'm one of you. That wouldn't surprise me. I think... Um, <laughs> I think Rude's heart was in the right place. He was just the wrong wrong appointment. But I, I think that the story I remember was uh, with the late, great Gary Speed. And he'd seen Rude on a night out once in, in one the local Italian. He'd gone up and gone, hi, Gav. I tried to engage some conversation. And Rude just didn't engage in any conversation with him whatsoever. And the story goes that the, the following Monday at training, Rude went absolutely mad with Speedo. He's like, don't speak to me when we're out of here. We're in public. I'm having, that's my private life. And there was, he had this thing about the senior players at the club. He looking from the outside, the likes of Gary Speed, Rob Lee, who was a brilliant player for us. He wasn't even given a squad number. Man. He was dumped into the reserves. Stuart Pierce was dumped into the reserves. I, I, he had a real issue with the senior players and he wanted to play the younger players. So again, when Bobby Robson came, it was quite simple. He, he gave Rob Lee a squad number. So, so Rob Lee, who'd always been our number seven, was given squad number 37 by Bobby Robson and brought into the squad. Alan Shearer brought back into the team. And that's all Bobby needed to do. He just got the senior players on side, brought them all back into the fold, and Newcastle just flew as a result. But oh, that was man. where Rudd got it wrong. He just spinned off all the senior players, basically, <laughs> and all the pros. If you ask a lot of those players from that period, if you ask what's the worst tackle, one of these things that comes up with a lot of the talkings and shows you do, you ask what's the worst tackle you've ever seen. And a lot of the players from that period said that the worst tackle they ever saw was Stuart Pierce on Rud Hullet in a training <laughs> session where they had a, a training session and they Rud got involved. Like you said, so probably following on from your story, Chris, about getting in the showers is probably true. I had a training match and Rud Hullet got involved and apparently it was all set up and someone rolled one a bit short and gave Stuart Pierce a 50-50 and he took ball, man, <laughs> and Rud flying. And it was like the worst tackle anyone's ever seen. <laughs> and it, it was like, we've done that for all the senior players at the club. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's famous, that tackle. Oh, man. 90s Newcastle. 
what a period of time. What a club. It's just magic. And yeah, the podcast is We're Still Fighting for This Title. It's available on anotherslice.com and it comes out on the 6th of November and it is brilliant. It's so evocative. And like Pete says, the guys you've got on that podcast is brilliant. That cast of characters just sums up the 90s. It's excellent. My final question to you, Pete, is that we asked this of all our guests. If I gave you the option to go back to the 1st of January, 1990... And live it all again. Can I just interrupt and say, on the 1st of January 1990, Wolves beat Newcastle 4-1 at St. James's Park. <laughs> Maybe go for the 2nd oh, of yes. January. It's the, it's the day Bully scored four goals at St. James's Park. I remember that's, that. I remember that. That was the 1st of January 1990. That's etched into the memory. Yeah, that's how bad things were. This is the first time we've ever asked that question and someone knows what they did on New Year's Day 1990. That was the day, yeah. That was great. Oh, Steve Bull, what a player he was. Look, in answer to your question, yes, I'll do it all again. Someone asked, I say a stupid poem like that I wrote when Keegan walks out, but I always say, we came so close, but we have no regrets. The football back then was as good as it gets. And that's how I feel. Oh. I'd never go back. It was, in some ways, it's almost better that we didn't win anything. And the, the only reason, like I touched on at the start, it's just left this unbelievable drive and desire in the city. And the day that, we finally do win something and, and you hope it's not too far away that outpouring of emotion in the city will be unbelievable. And that trophy won't just be for Eddie Howe and, and the fans today. It'll, it'll be for Sir Bobby. It'll be for Kevin Keegan. And it'll be a buildup of emotion, which really started in that team in the nineties. So yeah, I would change nothing. I'd go back and do it all again in a heartbeat, lads. Oh man! I actually, I'm going to say it. I want Newcastle to win something. Like I this. do now. As well. That was amazing. Yeah, <laughs> brilliant. Pete Graves, thank you. We're still fine for this title. Is the podcast? And here comes a little excerpt now. It's Saturday, January the 18th, 1992, and Newcastle United are in the midst of a crisis. Empty spaces fill the St. James's Park terraces for the visit of Charlton Athletic. A dismal season is sinking to new lows and the fear of relegation from Division 2 is increasing ever more amongst the fans. Those in attendance watch on in disbelief as the team throw away a 3-1 half-time lead to lose 4-3. Season ticket holder Paul Dodds was one of those watching on and fearing for the club's future. The football was awful. You know, the the crowds were were, were dropping off. You know, it, it was just poor to go and watch them. You know, it was it wasn't great. But yeah, you just got to stick with them, and and you always think the better times are going to come. It's your club, and you, you always just want to see the best for them. I mean, it was still a day out at the time. You know, you you know you still got to to go to the game, still got to go to the ground, but with no real kind of hope or passion that you know that you ever want to win anything you know ever again basically that was the the kind of feeling you know some of the the football you were watching and some of the players that had obviously just you know went up to scratch so yeah it was it was hard but you know you, you just stick with them you just stick with them poor form on the pitch had been matched by instability off it bitter boardroom battles engulfed the club throughout the 1991-92 campaign with three different chairmen assuming control. Aussie Ardiles' time as manager would come to an end after the third chairman, Sir John Hall, took full charge of the club. A dismal 5-2 away defeat at fellow strugglers Oxford United in early February proved to be the final straw. Here's lifelong fan and season ticket holder Martin McElhone 
followed by Newcastle midfielder Lee Clark. We were full of hope with Ozzy when he when he first arrived, and it was an, he played attack and football, and and he put a lot of the young ones in the play. But then all of a sudden we were just getting beat and beat and beat, and you could see the club was going to get relegated. You could see exactly what was going to happen, and that was out of Division Two into Division Three. The young players that he brought in looked shell shocked, and the older players that he had there didn't have enough on them to drag the team through. I remember Sir John Hall and, and Freddie Fletcher saying, you know, it was an awful day when they had to tell Ozzy he was losing his job. And the first thing Ozzy done was with the local media guys who, you know, covered Newcastle at the time, he invited all of them round to his home in Jesmond for a cup of tea and glass of beer or whatever they wanted. And he was just such a great bloke. So you feel, you feel that guilt. A drop down to the third tier of English football for the first time in the club's history had now become a real possibility. Morale among the playing squad was at an all-time low. Decline in the region was also not exclusive to the football club. Deindustrialization throughout the 1980s had led to mass job losses and unemployment. Factory, shipyard and pit closures devastated thousands of families, leaving the prospect of no work, no income, no future. Here's Paul Dodds. I think the northeast of England, you know, I don't know whether we just we feel victimised at times, but we feel as though we do get left out a bit. That particular sort of time, that kind of era, it was a very hard time to to grow up in. It was, uh, you know, we went through a lot of uh, economic changes with the, as regards to the coal mines, you know, the, the shipbuilding industry took a big hit. Local to where we live, we lost our uh, steelworks, you know, 1980. We lost sort of five, 6,000 jobs in a small community where we were, where we, li- we live. But yeah, it was it was struggling. I mean, the key side now in Newcastle is a fantastic place, but, you know, going back to sort of the 80s and that kind of, you know, time, it was it was pretty much run down. Football was a different game in the 80s. Hooliganism had been rife on the terraces for the past two decades. Outbreaks of violence inside and outside of football grounds dominated the front pages as well as the back pages of the national newspapers. Coined the English disease, Hooliganism resulted in dwindling attendances. Crumbling, decrepit stadiums added to the sense of desolation and pointed to a bleak future for the game. These are Martin McElhone's memories of that time. Football was dying on its feet a little bit. The crowds were down. Clubs were getting about eighteen to 20,000 at the time. There was a lot of empty space as well. Football wasn't quite the product, if you're going to call it that, that it is now. There didn't seem to be the will to do anything about what was happening inside and outside grounds with hooliganism and football fans were treated badly. Football fans were treated like cattle. Uh, there certainly wasn't the the care given to supporters that you would see is now. There wasn't the organisation there is now. And football did seem to be a dying industry. The city of Newcastle was in need of hope. For Martin Hardy, a football journalist for The Times and author of the book Touching Distance, the football club had always been at the heart and soul of the community. You cannot escape Newcastle United. If you're a young person going to a match, you may walk down. And this is not a cliche, this is a truth of when I was growing up. You would walk down the street and you'd walk past your friends, parents, a mother or a father who didn't go anymore and they would know the score and they would know who was playing and 
if they lost, they would call you a mug uh, in a very jocular fashion. It's a very, very difficult football club to escape from. And I have spoke to an agent in the past half and he said a football club hasn't got a mood. And I said a football club definitely has a mood. And that mood in Newcastle would propel through the city and from Newcastle upon Tyne to North Tyneside to Northumberland. The would-be saviour of this story could be found on the sunny coast of Spain. Following retirement from playing, former England international Kevin Keegan had moved to Marbella. Winning the Ballon d'Or in successive seasons in 1978 and 1979 had cemented his place amongst football royalty. And a return to football was not on the agenda. However, one phone call would change the course of history for him and Newcastle United. Newcastle go to Oxford and that's when the walls come crashing in and it's 5-2. In the aftermath, Sir John Hall has given an interview to Bob Cass at the Mail on Sunday, backing Aussie Ordealers. Unbeknown to him, his son Douglas Hall and Freddie Shepard have already made contact with Kevin Keegan in Spain and he was unaware of that. The Mail on Sunday came out on the Sunday following the 5-2 defeat. The wheels were in motion for Keegan to come back. It was just that Sir John Hall was one of the last to, to be made aware of it. So on the Monday, Sir John Hall is in London shopping for trees because he's just bought Winyard Hall and he's a very, very keen agriculturalist. Unbeknown to him, he then gets a call from Shepherd and his son to say, you're going to meet Kevin Keegan in London now. And John Hall then goes off to meet Kevin Keegan and the whole history of the club changes from there. Brilliant. That was Pete Graves. How good was that, Parry? Amazing. I just love that. We texted each other after that saying, don't you really want Newcastle to win something now? <laughs> no. It's like, mad, isn't it? Just got caught up in the romanticism of it. Mad, yeah. He's turned me around, Pete. And, and here's how we're going to finish this episode, Michael. Have you got a quiz for us? We're going to have a quick game of starting eleven. The obvious choice being 3rd of April 1996, Liverpool versus Newcastle United. Oh, wow. Liverpool win 4-3. You pick a player that played in that game or hopefully played in that game. If they didn't play or they were a substitute unused or otherwise, you lose the game. It's sudden death. Parry, would you like to pick first? Collymore. Correct. Fastino Espria. Correct. John Barnes. Correct. Uh, Les Ferdinand? Correct. David James? Correct. Um, Pavel Cernacek? Correct. Um, David Ginola? Correct. David Batty? Correct. Uh, Robbie Fowler? Uh, Correct. Um, I'm getting into sketchy territory now. Warren Barton? Oh, dear. Incorrect. Ah! Harry takes the victory. So That's a first. I'll run you through the teams real quick. Liverpool was David James, Mark Wright, John Scales, Neil Ruddock, Jason McAteer, Jamie Redknapp, John Barnes, Rob Jones, Steve McManaman, Stan Collymore and Robbie Fowler. So there's a few few more gettable there, I would have thought. Yeah. Uh, and the Newcastle United was Pavel Cernicek, Steve Watson, Steve Howie, Philippe Albert, John Beresford, Peter Beardsley, 
David Batty, Rob Lee, David Ginola, Faustini Aspria, and Les Ferdinand. Uh, was Barton on the bench? No, not even on the bench. Wow. The bench was oh. Peacock, Keith Gillespie, and Lee Clark. Well, there you go. Congratulations, Parry. You get to choose the song that plays us out of this episode. And might I suggest you pick something with a, a Geordie twist? I mean, I, yeah, I was going to go for Fog on the Tyne. I mean, is that, I was, is that I was, too <laughs> root, is it too <laughs> root one? No, no. It's perfect for this. Brilliant. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. This week's outro comes courtesy of Sal Tariq, who says, Time's got a loster. Rui Costa. We'll see you next week. Sure that they're in town when you hear those